Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. I was watching an NFL playoff game recently and had a very familiar experience, not with the game itself, but with commercials. It was a car advertisement featuring young outdoorsy people doing fun things like climbing, kayaking, and adventuring in the out of doors. I instantly recognized most of the places where the commercial was shot, in the Eastern Sierra region of the Owens Valley near Bishop, California. Over the years, I've had this experience over and over because Hollywood movies and commercials, especially for vehicles, are often filmed in this area, and for good reason. It's one of the most dramatic landscapes in the western United States. As a child, my first experiences with the wild places of the high desert and majestic Sierra Nevada were in the very same place. Family and close friends lived in Bishop. So when I saw the 2020 book titled Miracle Country, a memoir of a family and a landscape by author Kendra Atleywork was set in this very same region, I instantly decided to get it and read it. And after just a few pages, I was once again in familiar territory as I felt the pull of the eastern Sierra through the story of Kendra's family family that put down its roots there. Miracle Country is a book that moved me to laughter and tears, and because I was so familiar with the places it was set in, I fell in love with it and this remarkable family, so I knew I had to have Kendra Atley work on our show. Thankfully, we were able to not only schedule Kendra, but also her adventurous and charming father, Robert Atley, the publisher of Sierra Maps. Father and daughter joined us recently from their homes in Bishop, California. Kendra and Robert Welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks. Thanks for having us. First question I have for you, Kendra, is uh, I noticed your, your name is very similar to your father's. He's, he's Robert Atley, and you're Kendra Atley Work. Explain to us how that worked out. Well, uh, my mom's last name was Work, and they decided to just stick them together and not bother with the hyphen. And so there are only three Atley Works in the world, and that is me, my brother, and my sister, which makes us horrifyingly easy to Google. Oh, my. Well, I love that about your name, but maybe not the Googling part. <laughs> and the book came out in 2020, correct? Yes. And, you know, of course, right, right during the pandemic, which must have made things difficult. But I do have to say that uh, when I discovered it, uh, after just reading the first few pages, I was sucked in. And upon completion, uh, I have declared this my favorite book that I've read in many years. That is so nice to hear. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was very enjoyable to read. Let, let's start with the title, uh, because it's very interesting to me sometimes talking to authors about, you know, sometimes the title presents itself right away. Sometimes it's something that comes after you've been involved with a book for a long time. How did you come up with the title for Miracle Country, and what does it really mean to you? Well, I had a chapter called Miracle Country, but I didn't settle on that as the title for the book for quite some time. In fact, the original title when my agent sent it out to publishers was Flight Plan, which is the title of another chapter. Um, and it was my publisher who really wanted to call it Miracle Country. And I didn't, I liked that idea when they raised it because I feel like it functions on multiple levels. Uh, I think that the resounding thing that I hear from people who have visited the Eastern Sierra is that there's some kind of X factor here. There's some something about this place that kind of goes beyond its 
beauty that you might initially notice and sort of draws people here and keeps them here. But there's also kind of a, a darkness to it because of its complicated history and some of the more bigger challenges with the climate and the more difficult things about living here. So the title Miracle Country works on, I think, an ironic level as well. Not only is it a place that is feels miraculous for how special and beautiful it is, but a lot of the miracles in the book, for example, don't come to pass. Uh, my mom gets sick and she doesn't get better. And the, the water is taken from the valley. A wildfire burns my childhood neighborhood. So it's sort of a combination of miracles and non-miracles that makes this place so special and really kind of just grabs us and holds on to us. Well, I was discussing with our, our producer, Matt Fiddler, prior to doing this, that uh, my favorite places in California are Lassen Volcanic National Park, which is right near where I live. It's 40 minutes out the door for me. And the Mendocino Coast, uh, which I adore. And then, but really, the, my favorite place is the Eastern Sierra from like Bridgeport to Lone Pine. And a lot of people feel that way. Highway 395 to me is one of the most spectacular drives you can go on. Um, but I'd like to know, Robert, from you, how did you discover that place and decide, what was it that made you decide this is where I want to spend my life? It, it wasn't a quick decision. I, I got lucky in one way. I was um, learning to fly, getting my pilot's license my last year of college in San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly. And I met a pilot from Bishop, Eastern Sierra, who came over to San Luis Obispo to finish his flight instruction because he did not have any flight instructors in Bishop. It was so remote and so small, there were no flight instructors here. And so by be befriending he and me, I was able to come over and visit him in the Eastern Sierra. I said, this is really fun. And I spent a little bit of time hiking and backpacking when I was still in college. And... Later on, when I graduated from college and had the option of maybe going to work for General Foods in Battle Creek, Michigan, or coming to pump gas at Bishop Airport, the option of pumping gas and hiking and skiing um, was a little more appealing. And how did your mom, Kendra, get there? Well, tell us about her story. How did she arrive there? And I'm really interested in the story of how you met. She uh, was living in Bear Valley in the middle of the Sierra Nevada range, and she was a teacher there. And I believe, Pop, you, you can probably tell more about this than I can, but there was a position open at the little tiny school in Levining here on the east side, and she, she took that job. On the edge of Mono Lake, and that was even more isolated than Bishop. Yeah, and, and how did you meet her? Well, I played the trombone. And there isn't a small Eastern Sierra orchestra, symphony orchestra, <laughs> symphonic orchestra. And Jan played the flute. And we met at uh, summer rehearsals in Mammoth, where the orchestra met. And she was one of the few orchestra members that uh, walked around barefoot. <laughs> I thought that was pretty neat. And it turns out we both knew how to hike. And uh, I spoke Spanish, having lived in Guatemala as a kid a little bit. And she wanted to practice her Spanish after having been a student teacher in Panama what, during after her Penn State time. And so we just uh, kind of got along really well and ended up getting married and having a family. And for you, Kendra, uh, you, of course, grew up with these are your parents. And uh, tell us, give us a little capsule of what life was like for you 
uh, living in the Eastern Sierra? Because you lived right at the base of Mount Tom and the Wheeler Crest, which is an iconic mountain view from from Bishop and from that part of the Owens Valley. What, what was what was life like there as a child? <laughs> yeah, so we we live. My dad is wondering how how many how much I'm going to out him <laughs> for the, all the times we almost didn't survive. It was a very fun childhood. It was very adventurous. I think the fact that my parents both moved to the Eastern Sierra independently and met here and chose to stay here speaks to the kind of people they are and the way they embrace this wild landscape and their adventurous spirit. And they definitely uh, brought that into child rearing. So all sorts of things like crashing on a mountain bike into a stream as a small child, uh, uh, hiking to a crashed airplane as an eight-year-old when I was supposed to be in school. <laughs> uh, they, they really taught us to love and appreciate the place where we were growing up. And we lived, uh, we were partway up the mountain. So we were at about 7,000 feet. We would get heavy snow every winter. Sometimes the roads would be so heavy with snow that we couldn't go to school. Um, and we were about 30 minutes from any town. And that meant we were pretty isolated. So we, we pretty much had to learn to entertain ourselves and we did that via the outdoors. So I got very good at catching Western fence lizards and um a little yeah, blue bellies a, yeah those guys i would release them <laughs> but um it was just we just really kind of just became i guess one with the outdoors because that was the whole world that was what we knew there weren't other kids there there wasn't a mall to go to <laughs> so um it was a wonderful childhood it was it was isolated in a way that made it um conducive to becoming a writer and kind of gave me I hope a sort of different way of thinking and looking at the world, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> we did some, some really fun things that were not the normal thing. Every once in a while, when Kendra was eight, we ditched school and she jumped on the back of my motorcycle and I took her on a geology field trip at the base of, of Wheeler Crest. And another time we hiked up two to 3000 feet to the site of an airplane crash where uh, two young doctors and a young woman had, had died right before we moved into Swall Meadows. So things like that weren't kind of what you normally do in the city. There's a story in the book where my dad has taken my sister and I, I think she's, I think we're six and seven on a hike in the meadows near our house. And there's a burned down old house foundation. So basically just a concrete pit in the ground. <laughs> and he put us, he put us down in the pit and he said, pretend a bad guy threw you down in there. How are you going to get out? And then he, he left. <laughs> and we piled up some burned beams in the corner and avoided the nails sticking out of them and climbed out of the pit. And there he was waiting and watching to see what we would do. And when I wrote that scene in the book, I was trying to get at the, the, the idea of the sublime and the relationship with the place as something greater, almost spiritual that he passed on to us and my agent who was a great editor said you know this do you are you aware that this is kind of a weird experience <laughs> can you acknowledge that but <laughs> so it was a it was a unique childhood but it was wonderful well I'm glad you shared that story because that was my next question was going to be to out your dad about that exact story <laughs> and um, what I love about that is that as a parent teaching kids to be resilient and independent and teamwork there's a lot of cool lessons that go into that and you know when you think about 
all of the helicopter type parents now, and uh, they they worry about every little thing that their kid does. That to me, you know, is the way you raise a child to be an independent uh, adult. Right. You know, one of the funny things that for 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 their childhood is that instead of getting like you know pop guns and Barbie dolls. Um, every holiday I'd give them a tool. They, they, they started out with an empty toolbox and all of my kids got a tool that, you know, that they get five or six tools every year. So by the time they graduated from high school, they had a very complete functional toolbox, which he is still gives you, us tools. <laughs> that's still what we get for Christmas. <laughs> well, now that you're a homeowner, that's a really good gift. It is. Let's talk about the Owens Valley in the Eastern Sierra, uh, because it's such a special place with such an amazing uh, tortured history in so many ways. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the original people that lived there. Uh, and you do such a lovely job of doing this in your book. Of And there's one character, I can't remember his name, but he's one of the Native Americans that grew up there. And you tell the story of him uh, constantly weaving through your narrative uh, of his mountain, his spiritual mountain, you know, being his center. And uh, the people that live there called it the land of flowing waters. And of course, it's a desert, but it's it's a desert with with water flowing through it. Yes, the name is, the original name of the valley is Payahunadu, which means land of flowing waters and was not intended, ironically, because before Los Angeles took the water, there was an incredible amount of snowmelt flowing through the valley here. So even though by participation, precipitation levels were incredibly dry, we actually have a lot of water in this valley. And the Paiute Numu people were using that water to irrigate. They had irrigation ditches and they had a, a very complex system of moving their water around and uh, for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years live there uh, harnessing the power of that water and living living in harmony with that landscape. And then, of course, you know, the pioneer white settlers come along and start to settle that valley and displace them. And uh, one of the things that I learned a lot about was you know, how brutal that displacement could be. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so that was something that I was sort of shocked to not learn until I started researching after after leaving home, actually. I didn't know the details and basically, there was silver mining going on in Nevada, and some cattle drivers were bringing cattle through Owens Valley, Paihunadu, to supply Nevada. And they looked around and saw all of this irrigated land and these grasses that were being cultivated by the Paiute. And they thought, well, let's just stay here and set our cattle into these grasses and set up camp in this valley. And that was um, the Samuel Bishop party. So the namesake of the town and the first uh, settlers slash colonizers to establish themselves in the valley. And that led to them, they, they encroached on the food supply of the Paiute. They would store the, the crops that they grew for the winter. And when the cattle were interfering with those then the Paiute would harvest some of the cattle and it led to conflict. And the, the um, settlers ended up calling in the army and the army basically did a war of attrition on the Paiute, chased them into the mountains, starved them out, kept them away from water. And then the ones that surrendered and came out of the mountains because they were starving, they marched across the, uh, across the mountains in July. So the temperatures would have been deadly and left them, left the basically left them in the desert at a very ill-supplied 
not really a reservation. And they, the survivors, which were many, came back and reestablished and still to this day have a thriving community here in Paihunaru. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the author of Miracle Country, Kendra Atleywork, and her father, Robert Atley, as we examine the life of a family along with the natural and human history of the Owens Valley and Eastern Sierra. I'm Dave Schlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our visit with the father and daughter team, Robert Atley, publisher of Sierra Maps and Kendra Atley work, author of the book Miracle Country, a memoir of a family and a landscape. Yes. And then, of course, um, we have the water wars with Los Angeles, the famous water wars. Uh, and that was very interesting to read about because I know quite a bit about that history. In fact, when I was visiting Bishop as a child, I can remember being admonished by our friends, just like, hey, just you, you might not want to mention that you're from L.A. Just, you know, heads up, kid. And I was like, oh, OK. And it wasn't until, you know, as time went by, I started to understand that Los Angeles had stolen the water. So you had the original people that lived there, the Paiute, and had used the water. And then you had the, the colonizers come in and they were using the water. And then Los Angeles takes it. And uh, that that story of the loss of that water and the drying up of the Owens Valley is so beautifully woven through your family story. Yeah, I think that what's so interesting about this this place is really that it's been a chain of predation. So it's not as simple as right and wrong and villain and victim when we think about the ranchers losing their economy and livelihoods when LA came and took the water because they were the direct descendants of the people that had taken that and also enacted genocide on the Paiutes. Uh, so it becomes, it becomes very complicated. And I liked kind of getting into the mud with some of the historical figures who had opinions on this stuff and were sort of the drivers of it. And yes, weaving that in with my family story was kind of essential. When I first started writing the book, I thought, I'm just going to write about the place. I'm not going to put myself in it. I'm not going to put my family in it. But the more I wrote, the more I realized that the two things were inextricable and I couldn't tell the story of my family without the story of the place and vice versa. Well, and that's what makes this such a great, a great story. Uh, and what I enjoyed most about it was because, you know, I got to know, you know, as a reader, you, you and your family and, you know, got to love them and, and see the trials and tribulations that, you know, all, all families go through to some extent or another. And I, I found that to be just the wonderful part, the miracle of this book, if you will. I'm wondering, Robert, how did you describe to your kids, like explain to them about LA's water? Because I think that Kendra has some pretty cool uh, descriptions of how you described how the water leaves there and goes to LA. Well, you know, we, we, we tried to tell them different parts of the story and the pros and cons of of the water leaving, you know, the fact that it's funneled into the aqueduct eventually, but that the river level is regulated by DWP all summer. So you can ride it, you can float an inner tube down the river. Whereas in the past, it might've been in flood stage and then completely dried up. 
and also that if the city of Los Angeles had not come in and, and bought up all the farmland in the valley, it would have been homesteaded and it would have been private land and, and we wouldn't have had access to all of this public land that's in an indirect benefit from the city of Los Angeles controlling it and holding it for the water rights. And so I, I pointed that out to him and I would show him the aqueducts and the, the power, we'd go and explore the power plants. Our old house on the hill actually had a spiral stairway in it that came out of one of the old power plants. And our house was sided with clear old growth redwood that came from the city of Los Angeles water tanks before the big steel and plastic tanks came into being. They had big water tanks that were made of like a, the hot tub and the redwood would swell up and be a perfect seal. And so we had all these fringe benefits from the city of Los Angeles and quite a few of our friends worked for the Department of Water and Power, some of the better paying jobs. So there, there are these pros and cons where the branches are gone. Look at the dead fruit trees. Look at the, the homesteads that have been you know, just left, abandoned. But, so we'd try to show both sides of the story all the way through. Kendra, anything you want to add to that? Well, I don't remember being told in explicit detail by anyone much about that story, but there was an overwhelming sense of absence, I think, um, that you just kind of grew up with. And I think that was maybe compounded by the fact that we were very aware that we were a colony to large cities that that sent their, we, we're a colony to cities in the sense that they rely on our resources, both in terms of water, but also they come here to get out of the city and to recharge and, and to sort of refuel themselves in that way, which is a very understandable need for anyone who lives in a city, especially people from Southern California. So we felt very much like we, in some ways, existed, our economy at least, in service to people from the city. Uh, I was a waitress in high school and many, many of our patrons were um, tourists and a lot of them were really lovely and sweet and others were not, just as you would expect. But it was it was a weird dynamic where you feel like you have to make you have to kind of put an effort into maintaining an, a sense of community and a sense of local identity, because otherwise you're just so diluted by people from somewhere else that it can kind of wash away what's a value of your place. Um, there's a David Foster Wallace quote that says, a tourist is a bug on a dead thing. And I engage with that idea in the book and I end up disagreeing with it because I think uh, the people that live in the place that the tourists are visiting, they have, they have the work of keeping that place alive. Um, and a lot of the people who I've connected with since the book came out have helped me feel more positive about this dynamic because they've, they've shared with me that they have this extremely close relationship to the Eastern Sierra. And even if they are just passing through or they don't get to be here as much as they would like, they know it deeply and they love it deeply. In fact, multiple people have called it their spiritual home. Like multiple different people have used that exact phrase. And so that made me feel a lot better about the just sort of the inundation of visitors um, and the dynamic. But I think the water is an extension of that where knowing mm -hmm. that our water was going south to this big city was we just were aware of it, even if we didn't really know the details. And I have a story in the book about my friend Elizabeth and I um, 
we were waitresses together and we would go after work, we would go swimming in Owens River and we would pee in the water and she would say, take that LA. How do you like our water now? <laughs> so we did have a, a degree of resentment, but it was kind of abstract and diffused. And, and I really kind of needed to dig into it and dig into the research and make it more complex through, through the process of writing the book. Yes. And of course, uh, one of the most famous movies ever made, and one of the great Hollywood films, one of the last of the great Hollywood studio era films is Chinatown. Uh, and, and of course, it is set against the backdrop of what happened to the Owens Valley, the, the detective story and all of that. Um, when did you first see that movie? And w were you aware that that was, you know, that was essentially about what happened to your homeland? I saw it in college. I was a media studies major and I watched it in class and it in Los Angeles with a classroom full of people from Los Angeles. So that was very interesting because I was I did not really know about it before that, but I've I've heard it. It's probably the main thing that people that aren't from here and especially aren't from California at all will bring up when they hear what my book is about and where I'm from. Um, so I thought that movie was really interesting. I, I sort of like to interpret the the villain in that that film as a, maybe one half of Mulholland. I like to think of Mulholland as maybe being divided between the two um, characters. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting film, even though factually it doesn't follow the story, but it kind of gets at some of the themes of the actual historical events. And you you actually go on an interesting sort of pilgrimage while you're you're living in Los Angeles, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that as as we go along. But uh, you actually go you you try to seek out his gravesite, right? Yeah, William Mulholland is a fascinating historical figure. He is the the um, he's called by some the father of Los Angeles because he was the engineer who designed the aqueduct. Uh, but he had such an unusual life story. He was, he grew up in Dublin. Uh, his father beat him up. So he ran away from home as a teenager. He joined the British merchant Marine and wound up eventually coming to the U S and somewhere on the East coast, working in a logging camp, uh, got a leg injury, overheard the, the, um, surgeon for the camp say that they were going to amputate the leg ran away from the infirmary, stowed a ride to on a ship to Panama, worked his way up to California, the leg healed, and got a job digging ditches for the water company in Los Angeles, which was at that time very small, basically a cow town, uh, called in one text from the era from a visitor, a vile little dump. <laughs> and uh, so he, but he just completely fell in love with Southern California. He was in, he loved the LA River, which at that time was a wild thing that would occasionally flood, regularly flood, and drown people, destroy houses, and then meanwhile also create kind of a wetlands that doesn't exist anymore. And it was his job to sort of try to control this river. Meanwhile, the Transcontinental Railroad gets finished and developers start boosting California all the way across the country. And people start flooding west on the railroad to enjoy the climate. And William Mulholland, due to his work ethic, gradually climbed the ranks of the water company 
and it became his responsibility to provide water for this booming population in Los Angeles. And he's an interesting figure because I, he, he's not, I think the, the, the most, one of the things that I did when I was writing this book was find something that could be seen as black and white and, or polemic. You could easily be polemic about it and just complicate it and make it more complicated. And William Holland was one of those characters that was really complicated the more I looked into him. He was not really pro boosting California. In fact, in one one interview, he said to have said he wished he could shoot the the president of the Chamber of Commerce of Los Angeles, who kept advertising California, and bringing more people out than the landscape could sustain. But he was also a product of his time. And he chose to ignore indigenous wisdom about how a culture might live within its means how we might interact with the environment that what that's not a new idea that idea was around then he he ignored it because he was a man of his time and uh, he made the aqueduct whether or not he had mixed any mixed feelings about that we'll never know but he was an incredibly interesting person to sort of wrestle with uh, and i think in the book i try to sort of use his story as a way to say well what is it about my the way i see the world in my time that I might be completely, what am I blind to that's a product of when I'm living? And how can I try to get around that in ways that I can see that historical figures like Mulholland have failed to think around it? And, and having grown up in the Owens Valley, uh, in Bishop and around Bishop, uh, with that story as a background kind of thing, what, what was it like for you to spend time living in Los Angeles, you know, in the belly of the beast, if you will? Uh, what, what, what kind of things did you take away from your time there in Southern California? I think Los Angeles, I'm really glad that I spent that time there. I was in, I was in Southern California for about six years. And I'm really happy that I spent that time there because I'm back in Bishop now and I can't really do big cities. But I'm really glad that I got to see just all the richness and how complicated Los Angeles is, and also how these decisions, these historical decisions that people have made that make the world right now, as we know it, feel so inevitable, they were actually decisions being made by people. Um, and at any given moment, culture and history could have shunted a different direction. And it was interesting to dig into that for how Los Angeles came to be as well, and for how Los Angeles came to be as we know it. For example, in the 30s, there was a proposal to not pave the LA River and instead leave some land around it for it to flood each year so that it would be a green space for people that are otherwise locked in the middle of the city. And that was the 30s, and that plan was shut down by developers who wanted to profit by developing right up to its banks and armoring it. And now we see sort of people are trying to restore the LA River. So it's it's just interesting to see kind of this, these cyclical things and and think about how people have lived in that city just as deeply as here and, and kind of wrestled with with their legacy just as much as we do here. Well, the, the complexity of the history and personality of Los Angeles is something that that is a rabbit hole that you can go down and never come out. Yes. Of. What was that quote that Mulholland kept repeating? The greatest. Uh, good for the greatest number or what, what was it yeah the greatest good for the greatest number was was the um basically the justification the yes yeah. the justification that was used by um 
both him and also the federal government for, for the moves that were necessary to complete the aqueduct. And I think it's a very interesting phrase to dig into because good is very, what is good is very subjective and a culture decides what is good. And at that time, it was maybe a different metric than we would use today. If you're just joining us, our guests are Kendra Atleywork, author of the book Miracle Country, a memoir of a family and a landscape, and her father, Robert Atley, publisher of Sierra Maps, and we are talking about life in the eastern Sierra Nevada and the Owens Valley. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Welcome back to Blue Dot, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with Kendra Atleywork and her father, Robert Atley, as we talk about life in the Owens Valley between the 14,000-foot-high peaks of the Eastern Sierra and the White Mountains. The very beginning of the book uh, was what enthralled me right away, because it starts with wildfire in February. And, you know, we, we tend in Northern California to not think of wildfires in February, although we might someday. Tell us a bit about the story of, of the fire and, and how that drives your narrative. Well, we also in Swell Meadows did not before that think of wildfires in February, which is partly why it was so shocking. But that was 2015. So that was right in the heart of the, the drought that gripped the West and really was kind of the beginning of, I think, a lot of people sensing a sea change. I have friends who work in fire ecology who said, yeah, after that drought, we no longer talk in the same terms about fire and drought and water in California and the West. And so I was in Minnesota. I was in, um, in grad school and everything was crusted in ice and frozen and there was water everywhere. And I get a call from my dad. Actually, I think it was a text message. I think I came out of a movie theater and saw a text message that there was a fire and it was moving up the mountain into Swall Meadows. And maybe Pop wants to tell us a little bit about what he remembers from that fire. Sure. It was, it was my first exposure with winter fires too. I actually was on my way to the Swall Meadows house from Bishop to get a load of firewood because we were running low in firewood and I had a big stash of it up on the hill. And the windstorm had come in and blew down cottonwoods. The road was closed and I saw a little fire at the bottom of the hill that fire crews had already started responding to. And this was 10 to 15 miles away from our home. And I went up to our home and, and got the fire firewood, loaded up the cars and the sheriff's came by and said, we're evacuating the neighborhood. The fire's coming up the hill and we can't control it. And I go, well, I better grab some family pictures and things. And we, I had a friend, uh, two, there were two of us up there and we loaded up all of my kids' mementos and clothes to take them down the hill. And that night on the Sherwin grade, I watched what I was sure our house was burning because I saw multiple homes of our friends burn from a distance of maybe two or three miles, but you can see the structures just erupt. And the winds were strong enough that they knocked me down at one point in time, I was on my knees. And, and then the day after the fire, we got a call, your house is still standing. It swirled around it. And this happened for a number of pockets. But I think, Kendra, how many homes burned in 45 minutes to an hour? It was a third of the houses in, the, in Swall Meadows, it was a third of the houses. So 
I think there's about 200 houses. So I forget the exact number, but it was a third. And uh, I was, so I was in Minnesota and on the phone with my dad and he's narrating this and I'm just beside myself because as I'm imagining this childhood house burning, you know, it's the site of my memories of my mom. And so it's, it feels like all of that is just being violently destroyed. And yeah, so I was beside myself and I flew home on a red eye flight um, and our house did end up surviving just by pure freak chance because there was a fire tornado leaping around incinerating things and many of the neighbors didn't their houses did not so I flew home and I sifted in the ash with the neighbors and we would just salvage any little scrap that sort of retained its shape just any scrap of their of their old lives and just everyone was just in tears together and it was very moving to sort of watch the community come together and support each other through the fire and mourn together and it came it, it was an important moment to me because it was right after i had made the decision to move home i had decided that i was going to move back to my hometown buy a house and live there and i realized sort of simultaneously what i was getting into in the sense of i was moving back to a place where the that was kind of the front lines of climate change when it comes to drought and extreme storms and these extreme winds and extreme dryness and fire which is kind of california all of california and the west but i was also moving back to a place that had that people i thought were pretty Pretty well equipped to ride through that stuff because of the strength of the community. So I think it was the first time when the book deals with the idea of sort of grief going from internal to external. And I think as I saw California mourn through the drought, and as I saw my community mourn after the fire, I saw loss and grief manifest as something that could be shared more than something that you just sort of held onto and nursed in solitude. And it was that moment sifting the ash with the neighbors after this devastating fire and looking at how beautiful the mountainside looked in the aftermath of this disaster that I really felt like I had a deeper understanding of the idea of coming home and the idea of, of loss as something that can be carried and shared publicly, both personal and historical loss. I had a very similar experience when uh, my basic hometown of Paradise, California, burned down in 2018, and most of the town burned down. In fact, I remember my first trip up there uh, searching for any home that I had ever been in, whether lived there or they were friends' homes, and I couldn't find a single one. I could not find a home that I had, you know, had spent time in at all. And I had spent, you know, a big chunk of my life there from the time I was about, oh, 12, 10, 10 to 12 to um, when I moved out of there in 1990, you know, so it was like, I understood when I was reading, you know, about your, your neighborhood, what, what that feels like to sift through those ashes, even though I, I didn't live there at the time, it's, it's very hard to deal with. But at the same time, uh, it was winter and there was some uh, precipitation had fallen and there was green coming up everywhere. And I said, you know, well, nature is resilient. It's it's coming back and it'll it'll be back right away. Yeah, I remember in the aftermath of the fire, there was a community gathering and all the people, everybody held hands and they read the names of the of the people whose houses had burned and the streets those houses had been on. And it was a really moving moment. And there was a board that people were writing messages on and somebody wrote, the mountains are still here. And I, I found that really, that really resonated. 
Yeah. And then, of course, another manifestation of climate change that you deal with that's not as, uh, not as dramatic, but is certainly as impactful is your dad's well goes dry and has to be redrilled. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We just, it, it, it reminds us, we're reminded every day here, every day in certain seasons when it's not smoky, we're grateful. And when we're in a drought, we're aware. We, we can't forget about what's happening when it comes to climate change. For better or for worse. Right now we have some avalanche danger up in the mountains because of all the snow that's been coming in. <laughs> it's that's that's kind of the boom boom and bust of California for you. Yes, it is. The land of extremes. Yes. Do you plan to write another book? Uh is this something you would like to do with your life to be a writer? Before she answers, I told her, You don't have to write another book, Kendra. This is this is a great book. You spent six years working on it. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> so don't feel any pressure, but she likes to write. Well, I like writing. I don't I don't necessarily love posting about myself on social media, <laughs> but I, I love writing and I love all the amazing people that I've I have gotten to do a fair bit of touring. I've been very fortunate um to meet quite a few people even after the pandemic through the book. So it's been a great experience. I really enjoyed writing it. I love writing. I'll definitely keep writing. I'll probably write something really different next time just because, yes, this took six years and then several more years to talk about it and get it out there. But I do love writing and I will keep writing. Well, what I enjoyed reading it while reading it was I felt in the presence of a really intellectually powerful mind. And that I really loved. And I'm wondering from you, Pop, when did you first get inklings that this kid was really, really special and smart? Oh, when she, when she was little, she would, she would, you know, she started talking really young. I think at like age one, she, she told me, Nana said, don't go across the street when the cars are there. Something like a full sentence. <laughs> this is kids were usually saying ma, pa. And she would write these, these stories and have these um, little storylines with her sister and brother that were, sort of play she was like a playwright at age you know five so we we knew she kind of had a talent for it um it was it was a real honor to be included in her book and she we talked for hours she would she would grill me on you know growing up and stories that i could remember and 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 funny things that would happen and we we would laugh you know one of the stories was i loved bicycling i was always a cyclist and i taught my kids to ride and we zoomed off down the hill. It's a 3,000 foot descent. And I, I have my eight year old daughter behind me. You're supposed to be cautious as a parent and, and, you know, be careful and make sure. And I kind of forgot. I was, I used to race bicycles in college and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I'm going around this corner at 45 miles an hour. I go, Oh no, my daughter's going to come into this corner at 35 miles. An hour. And sure enough, she came into the corner way too fast. And, um, skidded on the outside of the corner and landed on her face, skidding through the ice. There was ice and snow on the side of the road. Anyway, I, you know, <laughs> she survived it. And I landed should... on my back. I just, oh, I yeah. didn't go over the gorge edge. That was, that was a good <laughs> thing. I almost went over the edge of the gorge, but I didn't. <laughs> and so uh, then I decided, well, she's not a bike racer, <laughs> but no, she's a, she's a great, a great writer and it's a real honor. And, and Robert, um, you, one of my favorite parts of the book would just put a smile on my face was you're at the Bishop airport and I think you guys are waiting for your food and uh, you, your dad starts running around like an airplane flying 
you know, <laughs> like a, like a little kid. And it's like that love you have of flight and flying and of those mountains and of that place really comes across as like that. That's the kind of that's the kind of person you want to be right there. It it was it was really it was fun. I had I, I started you know in the airport and got into the hot air balloon flying. And I would talk to the glider pilots and I would drive for the paragliders. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of wind and weather and a lot of flight stories um, that go along with Eastern Sierra. And Kinder got a lot of those out of me. Oh, yeah. One of the best. And maybe you could encapsulate it for us quickly. Is you almost crashed a balloon into, some, into a pretty nasty place. Could you briefly tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, I can. I was... I was a fairly new, inexperienced hot air balloon pilot. You get uh, much more cautious as time goes by. There's a, there's a the famous saying for the pilots, there are old pilots and bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. So I became very careful. And that 15 years of flying, I, I was never injured anybody. But that morning, I had three generations on board in the balloon. And it was near the end of the balloon flight and everything's smooth and calm. You fly in the mornings when it's very calm, no winds, nothing crazy. And we were near what they call the mammoth geothermal power plant. And the geothermal power plant vents the, the steam from the turbines above itself. And so there's warm call of a air that goes up. And from all sides, it's pulling cool air in towards itself because this warm column air goes up. Well, I was close to landing and I didn't really ever pay any attention to that. Maybe there was a sort of a suction towards the power plant from a quarter, half mile away. And I couldn't get away from the power lines to set the balloon down. So I got in this warm column of air, went above it and tried to go up a couple thousand feet with the remaining fuel I had. And I could not get out of this column of air. There was no upper level winds. And so I told my passengers, well, um, we're going to try different things. And I called to my ground crew, can you shut down the geothermal power plant? Well, no, that takes, you know, maybe a week to do uh what else can we do and i i just had to rack my brain for different physics principles and the balloon is sort of cone shaped and i would move a little bit to the left of the plant and move a little bit to the right in this column of air if you've ever seen a ping pong ball in the exhaust column of a vacuum cleaner they do that at fairs and at science things the sure. ping pong ball just bounces around in this column of air because has low and high pressure and it always comes back to equalize itself, but it, it moves around a lot. The balloon does the same thing. A short story of it is I ascended as high as I could with the remaining fuel. I vented the balloon that puts you in a terminal descent of about a thousand feet a minute, like a parachute speed. And I just crossed my fingers and told the ground crew, if I, if I get out of this column of air and I have clear ground below me, I, I, you know, I'm going to drill the balloon in as hard as I can. And it did shift at about 200 feet above the power plant. It shifted slightly to the right, away from the turbines and the network of lines. And I landed about 100 feet either side of a set of power lines. And, you know, we bounced a few times and the ground crew grabbed the balloon. And, um, you know, I think my passengers kissed the earth, or I did. And we were happy. It, it ended well. But I would I never went within a mile of that geothermal power I, plant ever again. I bet. <laughs> Well, and uh, and Kendra, with you, uh, I I would like to leave on on one note is one of my favorite Sierra people in history. I think you're a kindred spirit of, and that's the writer Mary Austin. And when did you first discover her? And um, when when you read her work, do you do you see a resonance between you know you and her of of, of being these these 
these writers in the Eastern Sierra? Oh, yes. I love Mary Austin. Um, I didn't actually read her until I was in L.A. in college. And I had a professor assign uh, Land of Little Rain. And I had this moment of recognition. I was like, wait a second. I, I know this. <laughs> and at the time, it was a place I was really actively trying to flee from because it was still a place that really felt like it contained too much loss and darkness for me to want anything to do with it. So I was trying to run away from it. But actually, finding Mary Austin was the, a moment where I very first thought, no, this relationship with this place is significant. It's something I'm going to be contending with my entire life. And it's a, it's a special place that's worth exploring further. And she kind of, I would say, got me started on thinking and writing about home back then. Um, I, I really love, I've grabbed a copy of the book here because I just love the list of things that I, I dug around in the, some archives of oral histories in the local Eastern California Museum here. And they have a bunch of stuff on Mary Austin. And I love the way the, the people in the town reacted to her. Uh, she, she showed up. So this is, she was living in independence here in Owens Valley in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And she was a pretty unusual woman, especially for that time. She got kicked out of the local Methodist church because she kept trying to interpret the scripture for herself. So instead she befriended the Paiute um, healers and roamed the deserts with them and was just a really interesting writer and thinker and wrote her amazing book, Land of Little Rain, which I think was ahead of its time. Um, well, not ahead of its time in the sense that she was really listening to a lot of that indigenous uh, wisdom, but bringing that into the mainstream before that started happening. Uh, it's a beautiful little book of essays about the deserts of California. She wrote that while living here in the Eastern Sierra. Um, but meanwhile, she made a rather strange impression on a lot of her neighbors. So I have a list here of things that her neighbors said when interviewed about her, her contemporaries. She was smart, said the woman who knew her in the valley, but yet it took a lot to understand her. The things she did, they were extreme, you know. Such a queer woman, very peculiar, dreamy, very odd. Her mind was somewhere else all the time. So I just love that little pileup of, of quotes from all her neighbors. Whenever I pass through Independence there, I always like to go check out her house and imagine her being in there. Yeah, I have a friend who was a painter and did some painting in that house. And they, they, she told me that she, she can really feel what feels like a Mary Austin energy to this day in that house. Now you'll have to drive by uh, Kendra Street, the Kendra's house. And she, I, I don't think people think Kendra's quite that odd or different. <laughs> She's pretty normal <laughs> in some ways. Just give me a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a joy to talk to both of you. Uh, Kendra At Atleywork, the author of the amazing book, Miracle Country, and your dad, Robert Atley. It's been so fun to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks again to our guests, Kendra Atleywork, author of the memoir, Miracle Country, and her father, Robert Atley, publisher of Sierra Maps. Miracle Country was probably my favorite read of the past few years, and Sierra Maps have been used by my friends and family for years when exploring the magnificent Eastern Sierra region. Which reminds me, it's long past time to plan a trip down Highway 395, my favorite scenic drive in California. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do that on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the Maestro. Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs> <laughs>